Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries. And I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Ministries and Director of Music Ministries. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today we're going to have a conversation with Joseph Bush, who is Professor Emeritus at Wesley Theological Seminary and is now serving as United Methodist Minister in Evergreen, Alabama, on loan from the Minnesota Annual Conference to the Alabama-West Florida Conference. He has taught congregational ministry and theological programs around the world in his native New Jersey at New Brunswick Theological Seminary, in Fiji at the Ecumenical Pacific Theological College, in New Zealand at the Presbyterian School of Ministry, in Minnesota at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and in his alma mater at Wesley Theological Seminary at Washington, D.C. He was also coordinator for the Washington Theological Consortium's Certificate in Ecology and Theology. His first book, Gentle Shepherding, was named one of the top ten for the year in which it was published by the Academy of Parish Clergy. And this is now his third book, about ecology and worship in Jesus, titled Worshiping in Season, Ecology and Christ Through the Liturgical Year. Welcome, Joe. We're glad to have you as our guest today. So tell us, how are you doing and and what are you working on right now? I'm doing well. Thank you, Derek. Hello, everybody. I am, uh, as you mentioned, the pastor in Evergreen, Alabama uh, these days, and I'm really enjoying it. I have two churches and enjoying both of them very much. And I'm far enough south here in Alabama that the, I guess the, the air from the Gulf of Mexico has been blowing all the bad winter weather away from us. So I'm actually <laughs> sitting pretty down here and enjoying life and ministry. Well, that's, uh, that's great. We, we invited you because of this book, but I'd love to talk more about how you're applying things at your local church, moving from the academy to the local church and all of that. So maybe that's a background of what we're doing. But but I want to talk about the book a little bit first, Worshiping in Season. I We just received them. I, I skimmed through it and am amazed at some of the things that you're talking about there. I hope, hope we'll get to some of them. But but tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. What, how did it begin in your thought and your mind? How did you come to write it? What and, and perhaps most importantly, what is your primary intent with this book for, for those who would read it today? It's been percolating for quite a while, and its intent, as with all worship, really, is to draw us closer to God and Jesus Christ, but to do so as as God's creatures within creation, to realize that this is a very earthly story of God's entering our world and and drawing us into a, a redemption that is to be lived out with our fellow creatures. So, that's the intent, and that's the intent in writing the book, and that's the intent in getting in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. That's the intent in sitting in a pew. But this has been percolating for a long time, but on the back burner, like like an old perking coffee maker. I It really started back when I was a member of 
where I was ordained in the old Northern New Jersey Conference of the United Methodist Church. And I was the chair of the Board of Church and Society, working on environmental issues and asked to preach often in churches on environmental stewardship or on ecology and ethics. But the invitations came around around the time of Earth Day, which is about the time of Easter, or around the time of the environmental Sabbath that the United Nations was sponsoring. And that was around the time of Pentecost. And these parts of the year already have themes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I started really interpreting our life, our ecological life as creatures in conversation with the resurrection and in conversation with the Holy Ghost. And we put out a little resource then called Environmental Sabbath. This was like in the 1990s. But this has stayed with me as I've led worship and as I've taught worship. I taught worship in New Zealand and just continued to develop it. Eventually, I wanted to really work it out as a book for those seasons of the Christian year surrounding Christmas and Easter, these important Christological moments, and give it to the church, give it to the ecumenical church, not just the United Methodist Church, as a, as a resource, hopefully, to help others in worship and in leading worship. Wow, this book is fabulous. I've, I've really enjoyed perusing it and seeing all the wonderful treasures inside and the reworking of some some of the liturgy that we're familiar with. I really like that. So in many ways, Worshiping a Season is a helpful biblical commentary on the passages suggested by the lectionary for the liturgical seasons, as you said, surrounding the two great cycles, the Christmas cycle and the Easter cycle, but not limited to them. So how did you decide when and where and how to augment the lectionary with other biblical material? Yeah, thank you. The first consideration I think I had was I wanted this to be an ecumenical resource. So I attend to the Roman Catholic lectionary for the Mass, as well as the Revised Common Lectionary, and include apocryphal writings too, which some of which are really magnificent with regard to how the earth is participating in God's work of salvation. So that's that's one augmentation that you might notice is it it refers to both lectionaries and i've always thought that the drama of the christological seasons is really primary and the lections are chosen during these important seasons to correspond with what we're celebrating about the life of christ whether it's the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection and to augment what the lectionary is suggesting accordingly. So when bringing an ecological lens to bear on the Christian year, it becomes really apparent that the lectionary has omitted some very earthy passages. And, and so I would look more broadly than the lectionary to see how the earth is, is participating in the story being told and how it might be at the same time being ignored by our lectionary. So I, like, for instance, with Pentecost, it, we often read from Joel. It's, Joel is quoted in Acts, and it's pour out my spirit on all flesh, you know, young and old, men and women, men, men servants and maid servants. And just prior to that, though, in Joel, we read in, in the verses 21, I think, of chapter 2, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. 
for the pastures of the wilderness are green. And so we have the, the story of all creation really being blessed with the, with the same promise of the Holy Spirit that we read so often quoted. So just, just noticing how the Bible includes earthly reality, even if it's being ignored by the lectionary. Mm. You know, some people may hear the, the title of, of this Worshiping in Season, Ecology in Christ Through the Liturgical Year, and think, oh, this is going to include information about kind of that special season of creation during ordinary time. And you, you note this at the very beginning, this, this move to try to broaden and really focus on ecological concerns during ordinary time. But I wonder, how do you see the relationship between what you're doing in this book that focuses on the liturgical seasons specifically surrounding the life and work of Jesus and that special season of creation during ordinary time that is also being developed in ecumenical settings? The season of creation is great, and it's really done a lot to prompt churches to start attending more deliberately to how creation figures into how uh, into God's good, our good news, and uh, salvation history, and that that occurs in the fall, and as we're getting sort of tired of the seas, of the Sundays after Pentecost and and before Advent, uh, where we're united, we used to have a uh, the season of Kingdom Tide around that time as well, and. And so I think it's marvelous. But if that's if that's sort of the dedicated time in which we attend to the natural world as a season of creation and don't incorporate it into our worship of of of, of God in Christ during the those those times surrounding Christmas and Easter, there's there is a kind of an unintended, unintended teaching like the I don't know if it'd be the null curriculum or the tacit curriculum if you're a teacher, but it's implying that the two don't have anything to do with each other. Creation mm -hmm. is its own thing, and Jesus is another thing. So mm -hmm. that's that's really what I'm resisting here is that is is seeking not just to avoid that dichotomy, but to really help us to integrate the two, to realize that Jesus, every, every all that is made is made through this one that we confess as Christ, and that our hope for salvation is with a new creation and not just to sort of fly away. Well, it's, mm -hmm. it's this integration that, that I really want to focus on for a moment. I, I, I want to talk about the order of your book in a moment, that you, you start with the Easter season and the preparation for that, and then, and then Advent comes at the end, which is backwards for all of us worship people, but, but I, I assume you have good reasons for that, so we'll get to that. But but before before that, and maybe this is part of what's behind it, is what I was amazed by in your book is how there's almost this mystical element that floats through it. But rather than a mysticism that pulls us away from the world, your mysticism pulls us into the world and, and makes us one with creation. And it just—it surprised me. It, it amazed me, and how well that was integrated into all of the different pieces that you do that, and and that, and that in fact you're inviting us as we worship together to bring creation into the sanctuary with us, and seated beside us are the elements of the earth, and and we are a part of that. The whole issue about being made from dust on on Ash Wednesday uh, was was just amazing to me. So, so you redefine. What for many people, mysticism is about separating from the world. 
and yet yours is to bring us back into the world. Tell, tell us more about that, where that comes from in your thinking, but also in, in the writing that you do here. That's a great question, Derek. I think that I'm not sure that I've, I've ever really thought of the distinction between otherworldly and thisworldly with regard to mysticism. Uh, since mysticism really is encounter with divine in the here and now with where we are, it's, uh, it's an experience in which we, we, discern or, or, or we discern the presence of God with us, and it draws us into the life of God, even as we are, draws our living into the life of God. So the, there is a sense of, I guess, detachment that, that, that can be a part of a mystical experience, but I think there's also equally that sense of incorporation, that sense of connection in time as well as across time and in space and on the planet and in our lives. So I think you asked about the order and beginning with transfiguration. I think I begin the book, yes, with the transfiguration. I'll explain why. But I think I begin that chapter with that vision of Teilhard de Cardin and the hymn of the universe in the in the his experience in the desert of everything being transfigured around him, God's presence in everything around him, in the, and, 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 and seeing that as Eucharist, seeing that as, as akin to the, the body and blood of Christ at the sacrament of Holy Communion. You, you also resist the, the pantheistic approach that, that God is everything and, and speak about God in everything, or, or the presence of God uh, aware of that. Help, help people make that distinction in their own minds. What, where's the dividing line mm. between pantheism and, and the awareness and the experience, the, the mystical awareness of God meeting us where we are right now? You're right. I am drawn to those theologians that do make a distinction and don't just consider everything sacred but try to find language to talk about the sacred in our midst or our incorporation into the sacred, that realizing that there is, there is a divide that is bridged by God's presence and by our story about God's, God's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and Jesus. I think that if everything is sacred, it sort of blurs what we want to mean by that. I was struck in, when I was in New Zealand and working with, I was so, so instructed by the Maori community that was a part of the Methodist church there. The, the name of the Maori synod is Te Akapuaho, which means the glowing vine. But the, uh, my students and my colleagues who were a part of that tradition helped me to understand part of their worldview where there are two big forces at work all around us, uh, tapu or tabu, which is kind of holy, and noah, which is ordinary. And they kind of cancel each other out. The sacred is frightening. If you go to a funeral, there is an enchanted world that is, is threatening to you at such a time. And you have to make the world safe again by using something that very ordinary that is also very powerful that, that, that brings us back to earth, if you will, that touching a potato or sprinkling with water. And I, I think that the, I'm not a dualist at all, but I do think that we need to maintain a distinction in our understanding about, our, uh, about the holy and about the reality mm. of the holy in our midst. And that I think it becomes even more miraculous when we notice how very 
earthy we are and how very holy that which is that is entering our lives and calling us onward. I, I think the distinction just high, like, like having uh, black on white, having a multitude of colors, the, 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 the distinctiveness of the holy, of the sacred, is demarked more clearly, I think, when we, when we maintain a conceptual distinction so that we can appreciate it all the more instead of just everything, everything gray, just blanket, everything is sacred. Though there is something to be said for that, but it's, the holy is everywhere, right? It is everywhere, and we are recording this uh, in February before Lent begins, and so Ash Wednesday is the launch into that. So you move from Transfiguration to Ash Wednesday, and and you also in your book make a distinction between we are from the dust and our time of confession, and and the from the dust idea we are made of we are of the earth is not a confession, but right. a celebration. And and but we have things to confess, and so again, help help me with that distinction too. And how does that how does that honor us to to claim we are of the dust as we celebrate this this Ash Wednesday moment? Yeah, I I like to distinguish between those two themes on Ash Wednesday of repentance and mortality. It it's certainly so that as mortal beings. We, we are also fallible and and have much to confess uh, um, amongst them how we care for our planet as well as each other how we treat creation including ourselves as a part of creation so there is i think the call to repentance is is needed and necessary and uh, not all churches continue to have regular weekly time for confession and assurance of grace mm-hmm. and most Protestants, United Methodists, don't have uh, an individual sacrament, haven't for a long time. So the call to confession, I think, is really important in Lent and especially on Ash Wednesday, also in Advent. I wouldn't want to miss it, but I don't, you know, I think we have one of our prayers of confession. I forget where it is now. I've, we confess that we are human. And and that is one of the most, well, it's silly. I it's not a sin to be human. It's a blessing to be human. And I have a lot more to regret, a lot more to confess than the, the fact that I'm a human. Even at my worst moments, I'm glad that I'm a human being. And I want to celebrate that you are human beings too, and that we, 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 we share so much with other animate life and well, as well as with inanimate being. We are, it's just such a blessing, and 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 I don't know where in Scripture I could find anything other than an affirmation of of the goodness of being human being, despite the fact that we struggle with sin and require mm-hmm. redemption. But it's not redemption from being a human being, and it's not redemption mm-hmm. from being uh, flesh and blood. So I, I see the to be dust, even to be mortal, as being a, a, a real blessing and to be celebrated in, in Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday last year, we'll do it again this year. We have a children's program here on Wednesdays. And our Ash Wednesday service is with the children. And I play the five-string banjo. And we sing <laughs> kind of little choruses like, here we are all together. Let us make a fire and celebrate the fellowship we have all as one. Keep a fire burning, kindle it with care, and we just celebrate one another. It's a, it's, it's some people's favorite service here because we are just 
easily with one another as we apply those ashes. And of course, the kids love the fire. Um, <laughs> so that ash, I like celebrating and I mortality too. As we were talking about the holy and the sacred and the distinction drawing the importance of each, the importance of being earthy and the importance of being called to holiness. It's the same, I think, with life and death, with mortality. If we knew ourselves to be immortal by birthright, ever living, what would the, how would that help us really to honor each other in our mortal days? Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. I, I think at, and I kind of point this out almost every funeral, that the transience of life just makes us treasure each other all the more treasure our moments all the more, count ourselves so blessed, even in, even in moments of pain, to know that there's something to be treasured here. And uh, so I think that mortality also is something that can be claimed by us as God's beloved human creatures. I really love that. And as you were talking about the mortality of humans, and I think about Psalm 8, which we consider the creation psalm, right? We we love using that one. But it says in there, you made us little less than God. What a, what a prominent place we have in creation. We can talk about that further because what then Psalm 104 kind of counters that in a way, which is another psalm on creation. But I was thinking back, I remember in a service that a pastor and it wasn't on Ash Wednesday, but talked about we are made of stardust mm-hmm. and just thinking about that kind of dust and, and, and that it's something more, in my opinion, more that shows that immortality, something that is grander. It's like, wow, stardust. We are made of stardust. Our planet is part of yeah. something much greater that God made. So anyway, that's, that's what came to mind as you were talking. Yeah, that I think is really important. And I, there are times where I move into that kind of cosmic perspective, uh, the, especially informed by the, the deep, deep ecology and, and the new cosmology. But I don't, I don't really launch too much into, into outer space, but to see Earth itself and the biosphere mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a gem within the universe and within creation and our our our, mm-hmm. our human life is a facet on that gym. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not actually a metaphor in the book, but um I I will say as we're we're preparing uh, as many worship leaders are preparing to move into Lent, moving kind of with these Ash Wednesday themes, this reminder that we are dust, it it draws us back. The readings, the the lectionary readings draw us back to Genesis and to our own creation and the creation of the whole world. But one of the one of the relationships that I I I found so wonderful in your your chapter about the beginning of Lent. So moving through Ash Wednesday and into the first Sunday of Lent when often we talk about the temptation of Christ is when we think about human humanity's role as part of creation, one of the things we we often wrestle with and you wrestle with in your book is this notion of dominion. What is our call to dominion or to tilling and keeping and how does that function? But I just kind of want to highlight and I'd love to hear you unpack it if you'd like to, how you draw that from Ash Wednesday into this first Sunday of Lent in talking about the temptation specifically and in that, 
asking us this question. And I'm just going to, if it's okay, I'm going to read your words to you because I thought this was so profound. He said, if we now read Matthew and Luke's version of Jesus's temptations as pertaining to exercising usurped power over human realms, heavenly realms, and over earth itself, what might Christ's resistance to these temptations mean for our own exercise of dominion as Christ's disciples? And I just, I want to bring that forward because I thought, I thought this was such a profound connection to make between what we're created to be in Genesis, how we remain dust, and that is to be celebrated. And that is not something, our flesh is not something to be, to repent of. And yet we also see in Christ, like in the temptation, this reframing of dominion for us. So I don't know if you want to talk to us more about that, but if if you're a worship leader out there that's like, how do I make all of this work? Oh, that bridging work. I just found so wonderful and such a, a different way of for us to approach these texts we come to year after year. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I think that reading of the of the temptation in Matthew and Luke both is something that just I bit it just I ponder it. It's mm-hmm. you you know, a lot of the time in the first reading of the temptation stories you say, Well what is this about? And who is this Satan or the it's like well, and when you when we start to realize that the Messiah that Jesus is that Jesus is entering that role that he is entering, this is the beginning of that at the temptation, that it's to be something other than the cross, that mm-hmm. that he is, we could do confess Jesus is Lord, but that that means something other than the kind of political power represented by the kingdoms or the economic power represented by the turning of stones into bread or even the spiritual power represented by command over the angels. That what being Messiah means, being Lord means for the one we confess is to go to the cross for us and with us, entering death with us in order to help us to enter into full life with him. And I I think that thinking about dominion in terms of the cross for Mm. Christ is very suggestive for thinking about how we might exercise or not exercise dominion. Relinquishment of power is something only the powerful can do. It's something God does in Jesus. And if we're going to if we're going to affirm any kind of doctrine of of dominion over the earth, which I think is a misnomer anyway, but we do have power. Mm-hmm. We have inordinate power. And what is what is it to exercise dominion? It's to use power rightly. Mm, but sometimes it might be to relinquish power or to share power. And at one point, it was in a World Council of Churches meeting at one point on technological power. This is mm. back in the 70s, but I'm remembering it now. Uh, there was an interpretation of power that was offered in terms of human relationships to earth as to whether it's symmetrical or asymmetrical. We share power easily when it's symmetrical. But we have to re- we have to either claim power if we are unempowered or relinquish power if we are the ones empowered. And I think cre- I think uh, in earlier points of our history, we struggled to live within creations. And, and for many peoples, they struggled to grow a crop or they struggled to find their food. The starvation is mm. still haunting our 
our planet and our peoples. But for those of us in the more affluent parts of the world, uh, we, we have inordinate power. And I think when we become afraid of diminishment or afraid of losing our power or afraid of sharing our power, we miss an opportunity to really engage in a solidarity with other peoples as well as with the planet and other creatures. I think we need to think about dominion as relinquishment and sharing as well as right use. Now, I know dominion is not a popular notion. Uh, and, 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 and that's uh, kind of why I look at it. I take the opportunity in early Lent to really look at that idea because of Genesis and, and mm-hmm. the reference to dust to look at what is this dominion really about. And I think what I point to is a high, is an irony in the two creation stories in Genesis. A lot of the time we think that we are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But it's, it's actually phrased as a blessing. And it's very, very harsh language to subdue the earth. It's not to have dominion over the earth. Dominion, you can, you can think of rather benignly as animal husbandry. To have dominion over the other animals is sort of what we do in terms of caring for them. But to subdue the earth is harsh and cutting. And I think it's like the plow, which cuts into Mother Earth. But it's phrased in this kind language of blessing. God blessed them and gave them this harsh, <laughs> this harshness. <laughs> Whereas the other creation story of the Garden of Eden, everyone likes to point to that as the ecological. Isn't it nice? We're in the garden to till and keep it. And I do emphasize that. But that story ends in curse after the misdeed with the fruit of the tree and the new awareness and the eviction out of the garden. And 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 the curse and we don't like to we don't like to read about that curse even though it's a it's a big part of our wesleyan heritage she, the, uh, some of charles wesley's hymns really refer to our redemption from that curse but here's this kind language of tilling and keeping the land that that story ends in curse and the the other story which sounds so harsh is phrased in terms of blessing. So I see the overall composition of Genesis as having this double irony about it. It's not so much we're commanded to have dominion, but dominion is represented as a problematic or even ironic thing that we would, mm. we would, we would need to cut into the earth in order to grow food. Or, or that even though we have, we're able to name the animals, we find that we have, we have to struggle just to make our way. So there's a, there's a double irony in Genesis. And I think dominion is, is filled with ambiguity. And that's part of the richness of the concept. I don't really want to lose it because I don't want to lose that richness and ambiguity because our power is very real. And we need to think how, how we use it or don't use it, how we abuse it, how we share it, how we relinquish it as Christians, as those who follow Follow Christ and his temptation. And that's the other story, too. Mark's, Mark's story of the temptation doesn't have those three temptations like Matthew and Luke does. It just says that Jesus went off into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted and that he was with the wild beasts and that God's angels ministered to him, that he was with the wild beasts. And I love that story of temptation because it indicates to me that when Jesus was launching into his messianic ministry, he started in the wilderness with the other animals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this is just a a drop in the bucket of the richness that you can find throughout this resource. And I just want to highlight 
too, that as in-depth as this discussion is, and it will really kind of, I hope, provide a lot of fodder for people as they think about how they're going to teach and preach and pray and be together in worship during these specific liturgical seasons, you also end the chapters with liturgies, helping people imagine what it would mean to take this depth of content And then what does it look like to apply it in your own words? It seems in other places you quote other available liturgies. And what a a gift to us when we're so possibly overwhelmed with the possibilities to have this, this opportunity to see how you have distilled it so that we can have a sense of how we might distill it in our own context as we lead worship and try to keep an ecological focus within Lent, Advent, and beyond. So, Joe, thank you so much for this conversation today, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We hope that this conversation has been helpful to you. Remember that you can find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. Until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.